In fact, I don't believe there's such a thing as a traumatic experience. I've worked with thousands of cases of people that thought that a traumatic experience when they came in and they walked out, they were grateful. So it's not the event unless you give power to an event and label that, but you're the one that labeled it. Hello and welcome to Your Exceptional Life, a podcast dedicated to helping you master every area of life. That's it, your life purpose, your movement, your social life, your nutrition, your family, your growth, your wealth, and your spirit, soul, and faith. If you muck up even just one of them, the consequences are disastrous. Yes, we are here to help you make the rest of your life the best of your life. And boy, oh boy, what a guest we have today. One of my greatest mentors in life, Dr. John Demartini, who was kind enough to put his name on the front cover of the book, this book is a masterpiece for creating a magnificent life. Don't take my word for it. Take Dr. John Demartini, who's been so kind and so generous uh, with sharing his wisdom with me a number of times over the years. I've been to a number of his events uh, with my wife, Sarah, the breakthrough experience and prophecy being two of the big ones that really have helped us as uh, a couple, as individuals, and in raising our children. But if you don't know who Dr. John Demartini is, let me share with you a bio that is inspiring to say the least. Uh, growing up, Dr. Demartini had learning difficulties. He actually uh, had he wore leg braces uh, growing up. He wore a dunce cap in class. His teachers said he wouldn't amount to very much in life. He left school at 14. He nearly died from strychnine poisoning at 17. Uh, he met Paul Bragg, you know, apple cider vinegar and Bragg's liquid aminos, if, uh, particularly if you've ever been vegan. Bragg's are massive in the vegan world, but they're big in the health food world as well. Uh, he met Paul Bragg when... Uh, Paul Bragg was 93. I think Dima might have been 17 at the time. Um, when there's no pandemics, Dr. Demartini is traveling the world 360 days a year to over 50 countries. He's running a breakthrough experience every weekend. Uh, he's doing a lot digitally at the moment. I highly recommend you go to drdemartini.com or see him on the socials or listen to his podcast to really immerse yourself in the wisdom that is the polymath, Dr. John Demartini. He's the author of over 50 books. I think I'll probably only write one book in my entire life. Dr. Demartini's written over 40, um, 50 audio programs, DVDs. He's been in many documentaries and movies, whether it's A Secret, Oh My God, Overfed and Undernourished, just to name a few. He runs so many programs through the Demartini Institute. No matter if you're at the beginning intermediate way down the track of uh, life he has a program for everyone the demartini method is one of the most powerful methods i've ever gone through myself if you are well i would say dedicated and privileged enough to do it and incorporate it into one area of life i highly recommend it for me i've incorporated the demartini method so much in my relationships with other people i share on this episode in this interview with uh, dr demartini the massive transformation in my marriage, in my intimate relationship with Sarah. I was on a path of making one of the greatest blunders in an intimate relationship and I share it all on this episode of Your Exceptional Life. Uh, we talk a lot about values. We talk a lot about inspiration as a nutrient for a long life. We talk a lot about resilience. We talk a lot about... Um, Again, love, intimate partner, going from a victim story to a victory story. We talk about becoming a master of destiny. We talk about expectations. Uh, we talk about so many factors of life. I really hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. John Demartini. And once you've had a listen to it or watched it, please head on over to drdemartini.com. Uh, do the values exercise at the very least. Immerse yourself in his books. And if you want to see the uh, highlights of uh, Dr. Demartini um, in your exceptional life, you can head on over to marcuspierce.com au forward slash book and uh, pick up your own copy of your exceptional life. All right, for now, let's go to the great man. That is Dr. John Demartini. Dr. Demartini, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you again. Thank you for having me. I, I must say a sincere word of thank you uh, to kick us off here. Um, you've been a, a great inspiration for uh, the book, Your Exceptional Life. Uh, you were kind enough to put your name to it um, on the cover. I've also popped it on the back cover as well. But uh, more than anything, it's because your work has had such a profound impact uh, on my life for um, more than 10 years. I think uh, to begin with, as a filter for us to discuss certain topics today, um, I looked at the references to uh, Demartini in the book and you're in there over 15 times. And the main 
the main message um, that I have learned from you over the years is this conversation around values. I first learned of values doing Tony Robbins events in my early 20s. I had a list of values a mile long. And, and then I read Brian Tracy's work on values. And then I read Stephen Covey's work on values. And then I married a chiropractor and uh, was exposed to your wonderful work. And ever since then, your work on values for me has stuck. When I think of values, I think of you. When I think of you, I think of values. Can you, can you share with people your experience in the discovery of your values and why they are so important to each and every one of us? My personal values or just how significant values are? Oh, just your own journey and how, how much you realized values were the epicenter of your life and your potential in life and then how you've seen that play out in humanity. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll develop a little bit of values first, and then I'll tie it to mine. In my observation and my research, unquestionably, human beings perceive, decide, and act according to how they filter their reality, which is determined by the hierarchy of values that they hold, the set of priorities that they live by. When I say values, things that are valuable to them. Many people think of values, they think immediately of a moral construct and values underlie that, but that's values are more than just a moral construct. They're just what's important. You make decisions accordingly. So in this hierarchy of values that each of us have, they're unique, like a fingerprint. Whatever's really, really, really highest on that list of values, you're spontaneously inspired from within to act. So that's where you're going to be disciplined, reliable, and focused in Excel. And whatever's lower on your values, the more progressively lower it goes, the more you require extrinsic motivation, incentives, reward to do it, punishment if you don't do it, to get you to do it. And the more extrinsically you're driven and you're least efficient there. You're in your amygdala response there where you're in your executive function when you're in your highest values. So anytime a person or an individual sets goals, true objectives that are aligned and congruent with what they value most, they're going to increase the probability of excelling and achieving and feeling fulfilled. Now, in my case, I, um, I had learning problems as a child. And I had to go to speech pathologist when I was one and a half. And then I end up being told in first grade I would never be able to read or write or communicate effectively and uh, probably not go very far amount much in life. I ended up dropping out of school and was a street kid. So the void of being intelligent was there. I was decent once I turned to four, age four, I was decent with my body in sports. And I tried baseball for a while and I got into surfing. And I made my way from Texas to California to Mexico to eventually Hawaii. By the time I was 15, I was living in the North Shore of Oahu. And I was riding big waves. And I nearly died there. And I was literally unconscious for three and a half days. And in the recovery of that, I was led to a little health food store to get some decent food in me. And then to a little yoga class to try to gain control over my neuromuscular system, which I had injured. And that led me to meeting a gentleman named Paul Bragg, who one night with his message inspired me to believe that maybe, just maybe, I could change my state and become intelligent and learn how to read and write. So the void was there. And what the voids are, are, are what want to be filled. So if you perceive you don't have money, you search for money. If you perceive you don't have a relationship, you search for relationship. You perceive you're unintelligent. You kind of want to be intelligent if you have that perception. And I did. So I used to have people read for me up until I was 18. I'd ask them to tell me what to read that for me. I used to talk them into it. So at age 17, almost my 18th birthday, after meeting him, the night I met him, I actually believed that someday maybe I could be intelligent. And I dreamed about doing that. And so I left there, flew back to California, hitchhiked back to Texas, 
took a GED and miraculously passed it. Guessing is one of those thank, thank you kind of things. And then I attempted to go back to school. But the first time I tried to take a class in school, I failed. I got a 27. I needed a 72 to pass. And I almost gave up on the whole idea. I was sitting on the living room floor, curled up on a fetal position underneath this Bible stand. And my mom came home from shopping and she said, son, what happened? What's wrong? I said, mom, I blew the test. I guess I don't have what it takes. And I repeated what the first grade teacher said to me. I'm afraid your son will never be able to read or write, never be able to communicate, never mount a thing, never go very far in life. And she didn't know what to say. And she was just poised for a second. Finally, she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, son, whether you become a great teacher and philosopher and travel the world like you dream, whether you return to Hawaii and ride giant waves like you've done, or return to the streets, which you've also done in Panhandle, I want you to know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what you do. We just want you to know we love you. And in that moment, that love, that presence, the gratitude for being me for who I am, which probably only a mother could really grasp, made me close my eyes and I saw the vision that a night that I met Paul Bragg of me standing in front of a large group of people and speaking, which is painted by Andrew Tischler out of Melbourne, Australia, and it sits in my office as a big painting. I've seen you share the artwork. It's incredible. Yeah. And uh, that night, I, I said to myself, that day when, when uh, I came home, she said that, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to master this thing called reading and studying and learning. I'm going to master this thing called teaching and philosophy and healing. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service of love across the planet. And I'm not going to let any human being on the face of the earth stop me, not even myself now. And I had this moment, like a power of a Mack truck or a power of an engine of a motor, you know, locomotive or something, this kind of super feeling that there is no option now, no turning back. And I went in, I hugged my mom and I went into my room and I got a dictionary out and I made this methodical commitment that I was going to read 30 words, spell them multiple times so I remembered their spelling and write them down. I figured if I wrote them down 20 times, I'd remember the spelling. I would then use them in a sentence and get a meaning out of it and be able to spell and pronounce and extract the meaning and present that to my mom, 30 new words a day. That was the commitment. And so I did that and I would repeat that and I would not go to bed at night until I had 30 new words comprehended. And I didn't, I wasn't allowed to forget the ones before. So I had to keep building them. And uh, with the help of my mom like that, I eventually comprehended some books, some, some things in school. And I have passed. Before that term was over, I was passing. And then I um, couldn't put a book down. Couldn't put a dictionary down. Couldn't put an encyclopedia down. Any word in an encyclopedia I didn't know, I put to the dictionary. And then I'd memorize that one. And I just started, and I had a dream to develop an encyclopedic mind, be part of polymath, and become a scholar, and become well-read. And uh, I made a commitment that I would read every encyclopedia that I could find, all the sets and all the volumes, to try to catch up with all the other kids. And I started on my journey. And lo and behold, Literally in less than two to three months, for some reason, I guess because I was so determined to want to read and learn, and I wanted to engage in school, that students started asking me questions. The first one was a 375-pound Afro-American woman that wanted to know how to do yoga. <laughs> I was a yogi at the time. Then a Persian gentleman asked me how to do meditation. And then about 16 kids got out of a math class and came in and asked me if I could tutor them on algebra, which I was learning. And my teaching career began. And that was 48 plus years ago. And I've never stopped since. And there was nothing more inspiring than to have somebody ask me for information. 
Mm. That was like a dream come true. So I've worked hard to try to gather reliable information to be able to present something that's meaningful to somebody. Mm. And I, I can't think of anything else I'd rather do. That's why I do it seven days a week. And and I wonder, and I love, I absolutely love that you tear up. I think I've heard you tell that story probably 30 times. And I love that you tear up telling it every time because of the simplicity of the fact that it was particularly with your mum, and the very fact that I'm sure when you tell the story, you reflect on almost five decades of living that vision. Um, but just this morning, I was listening to uh, a podcast which is a, it's called Renegades and it's Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen having a chat for about four, four hours over a whiskey. And I thought of you because it, this comes exactly to everything that you talk about because in the book I talk about, I, I quote you directly from previous interviews I've done with you around victim thinking and how do we go to victor thinking and um, you often talk about being able to uh, use the power that we've been able that we can actually harness through all the challenges that we've had. But I just want to share with you this because I feel well. Perhaps I, I think it will inspire you, but I also think it may inspire others. Barack Obama said, "Michelle always asked me, why is it that you just feel so compelled to do all of this hard stuff? What is this hole in you that just makes you feel so driven?" And Barack responded, and I think that part of it was that early on, I felt like I had to live up to or prove to, or maybe the reason why my dad left at an early age is because he didn't think it was worth staying for me. And I'm going to show my dad that maybe he made a mistake not hanging around because I was someone worth investing in. And then Bruce Springsteen says, it sounds like you were always trying to prove your worth, a lifetime of trying to prove your worth to someone who is not even there anymore. And then Barack says, and, and, who, and, and my dad may not have even been thinking about that and maybe he was confused maybe my dad was lost maybe he felt damaged in various ways springsteen springsteen says we end up wrestling with ghosts but the trick is to turn your ghosts into ancestors ghosts haunt you ancestors walk alongside of you and provide you with comfort and a vision of life my father walks alongside of me as my ancestor now it took a long time for that to happen and i listened to you tell your story i listened to barack obama bruce springsteen tell their story there's a fork in the road where you could have told the victim story, but you chose at some point to turn your victim story into a story of victory. Everyone I feel like on the planet has a fork in the road where they have a life experience and they either sweep it under the carpet and it becomes part of their victim story or they decide to make it part of their victory story. What's the difference between making that decision? I mean, it, it sounds conscious, but I know it wasn't. I mean, do, do you feel what I'm grappling with here? Like, those Hollywood moments where you go, I'm, I'm in a fetal position under a Bible stand and I'm going to choose victory over victim. Like what's the difference in humanity that creates, goes down one path versus the other? Well, this is a good question. First of all, as William James and other founders of the movement of psychology have emphasized, uh, it's not what happens to us. It's how we perceive what we decide to do and how we act. So if we have a perception that there is something that is terrible, not terrific, or terrific, not terrible, and we're conscious of the downsides, not conscious of the upsides, or conscious of the upsides, not conscious of the downsides, we have a subjective bias, and we have a confirmation bias on the positives and negatives, and a disconfirmation bias on the negatives and positives. And we have a skewed view of reality. And that causes us to go into our survival response. If it's more positive and negative, it goes into an impulse towards, as if it's prey, to eat. And if it's the other way, we tend to avoid it, which is predator to eat us. And these subjective bias survival states skew things all the way to absolutes, all positive, no negative, all negative, no positive, which don't exist except in the human mind. These survival states then trap us because anything we infatuate with and in a, in a seek or repel from, in a, you know, repel from, avoid, occupy space and time in our mind and create noise. Now, we have another part of the brain. That's the amygdala. That's the desire, the subcortical area of the brain, desire center. We also have a forebrain, and we have the capacity to homeostate our perceptions with our intuition. Our intuition is always trying to reveal the unconscious to the conscious to make us fully conscious. 
So our intuition is trying to find the upsides to what we think is terrible and the downsides to what we think is terrific to hone us into the center, which is the mean, so we can extract meaning out of our existential experience. So if we see a trauma, traumatic experience, that's because we're not choosing or intuitively guided back to see the upsides. So it is not to do with what's out there. In fact, I don't believe there's such a thing as a traumatic experience. I've worked with thousands of cases of people that thought that a traumatic experience when they came in and they walked out, they were grateful. Hmm. So it's not the event unless you give power to an event and label that, but you're the one that labeled it. You're the one that chose to see the downsides without the upsides. But we've all been in a situation where we've had a terrible event in a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, we look back and go, oh, thank you. Or we had this event that we thought, oh, this is amazing. And then we found a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, we found, oh, crap. What the hell? <laughs> so those are just delusions. And, and, and the wisdom of the ages does not have to have the aging process. You can ask questions and see both sides now and have the wisdom of the ages without the aging process. So the quality of our life space is acquire the questions we ask. And if we ask questions that equilibrate the mind and bring us back into the mean, we extract meaning out of our existence, as Viktor Frankl did out of the concentration camps. Mm. So I'm, I'm certain that it's not out there. It's what you decide to perceive out there. So if you perceive something terrible and you don't take the time to find the benefits and neutralize it out, you're going to be a victim of history. But if you decide to see the other side – you become a master of destiny. Now, this is what I love, and I want to do. A, I almost want to go into a breakthrough experience or a prophecy, uh, which my wife Sarah and I still count as two of the most powerful events we've ever done together. A lot of our personal growth has been together, which has been wonderful. But I was, uh, I was consumed by what I saw. Um, that has just taken place in Cape Town. And I thought of you because I know you have quite a presence in South Africa. And uh, for those of people that are just that, that may not have seen it on the news, at the time of this recording, um, uh, Table Mount, the slopes of Table Mountain have been under fire and one of the oldest libraries in the world has effectively burnt down. And I thought of you, Dr. Demartini, because I was like, okay, I know that Dr. Demartini would be doing a collapse process on this straight away because almost at an instant you could, you know, I'm a news guy by profession. It's like I can see the headlines and you can see the trauma and the drama and the pain and I saw posts from my South African friends going, I studied there, I did protests there when Mandela was in prison and you feel it. Like I can totally appreciate that but I knew you would be collapsing it right then and there. So can I quiz you because I know a lot of people would love to know. I know you say there's the good and the bad and all the rest of it but what were you what were you doing with yourself when I'm assuming you were collapsing the the Table Mountain fires? Well, actually, that's the first I heard of them, so I haven't heard of them. Okay, and my, apo my apologies, then. Sorry. Yeah, I it's under control. It's under control. Yeah, I will. I will have to investigate it. I uh, dated a woman. Uh, her name, a lovely lady named Trish from Cape Town, South Africa. Lived on the other side of Table Mountain. Lived on the Londudno side. Um, so I haven't heard that, but can I share some story? Please do. Yes. I, um, I, I had a woman who attended my breakthrough experience 20 years ago. Well, she came to one of the earliest one 30 years ago, but she came again at, at 20 years and, um, her house burned down. Everything, all of her possessions were gone. She came home and saw her house completely in flames. Luckily, she had a car. She had some clothes on, but it was it was everything. When they finally put the dose of the fire out, for some bizarre reason, there was one book that didn't burn. One book that didn't burn, and it was her Bible. Wow. And so she went in there and picked up this Bible and thought, this is like miraculous that this one book amongst this massive flames was positioned in such a way it didn't burn. Something fell on top of it, protected it. Now this Bible, she was from Quebec city, Canada, French Canadian. This Bible, the origin of it, where she got it was on top of Stoneham mountain. So she ended up going on top of Stoneham mountain to meditate, to try to find the blessings in this, this crisis. 
when she went up to the top of the mountain, she ran into the man that she married. Wow. So when she stopped and looked at it, her perception of the fire all of a sudden shifted because now she stacked up the blessings, counterbalancing the drawbacks. And he had wealth and a house and a place for her to live. Wow. So what the point was, now that's a unique case, one of those moments of inspiration. But at the same time, I've had the opportunity to take people through just about every trauma, hmm. from deaths, to murders, killings, rapes, incest, everything that people label traumatic. I've seen people have their friends blown up in front of them, body parts on them. I've seen uh, a, a three-year-old child raped in front of the parents. I've seen all kinds of things. And at first, your first response is, how could there possibly be any upsides to this or blessings to this? But the truth is, if they don't find them, it's going to run their life. Mm. It'll be stored in the subconscious mind. And then you'll have a skewed view and you'll be letting the world on the outside run you. Mm. So we dig and deconstruct these events and find out how we dissociate and create alternate states of mind in order to survive them. Mm. And look at the content of the mind to counterbalance the content of the perception of the trauma. And we find out that the mind is amazingly resilient and is constantly putting counterbalancing anti-memories in place to counterbalance whatever we're perceiving. And if you can make somebody with the right questions aware of it, they can neutralize the trauma and turn it into something that's meaningful and extract meaning out of their existence. And that's one of the things that I feel quite proficient in, in assisting people in doing, because I've been doing it for so long. Mm. And uh, so it's never what happens to you. It's your perception, decision, and action as a result of it. And you have to be accountable. Epictetus, the philosopher, said at first on your journey of self-development, you blame others and blame other things. As you go down the journey a little further, you start to blame yourself. But as you finally get farther and farther down the journey, where you start to become awakened and more actualized, you realize there's nothing to blame. There's something that's nothing but a, on the way, not in the way. It's a feedback to your authenticity. And it will only catalyze you to be more closer to who the true you and the authentic and whole you is. And so the wisdom is to extract out of our experiences the side we're ignoring that we're unconscious of and become fully conscious. There's a number of angles I want to go with this. Um, and I feel a bit... Uh... Um, what's the word, overwhelmed even by your response. But I want to ask you about synchronicity because I'm sure you could argue or even say that there's no such thing because synchronicity is everywhere. It's all the time. It, there's never a moment that is um, not synchronous. And my my nana, um, my mum is one of 15 or 16 children, uh, but my my grandfather's first wife died giving birth to the 11th child. And then my nana uh, met my met my pa, inherited, uh, there were 10 children alive by that stage, inherited 10 and had another five, one of them which was my mum. And I've, I've said in the book, I wouldn't be alive if Annie Seymour didn't die hemorrhaging whilst she gave birth to the 11th child. It sounds unsavoury, but the synchronicity is that I owe a part of my life to Annie Seymour. And I know there's people that don't want to consider the unsavory parts of their life because they almost feel guilty for going, well, if the Holocaust, you know, I know Eddie Jaku, who's the happiest man in the world, his great book, he's a personal friend and he's 101 and he met his wife, Floor in, it was Belgium or Paris after the liberation. He tried to escape the war three or four times, got captured three or four times, got abused, beaten, smashed. Everyone in his family died. And then he met his wife and they moved to Australia. If none of those challenging times didn't occur, he would not have had the life that he would, he lives. He now shares his wisdom at the Jewish Museum in Sydney and he teaches people that hate is corrosive. He couldn't share that message without the experiences of his life. But there are so many people in his words, and I'm sure your experiences, that still live in the, in the concentration camp. They have never left. Yes, um, they never left. Because as you've said, they, they still live in their amygdala and they are not... Uh, choosing to graduate. I don't know how to ask it because it almost seems cruel, but 
Um, and I feel like maybe I've already asked it and you go, Marcus, you're a slow learner, but why do some people stay in the concentration camp of life and others like Eddie? Eddie Jakey's was, I can't raise my son as this angry, bitter and twisted dad. When he had a child, he was like, this is it. I've got to find my happiness. But not everyone does that, do they? Well, every decision human beings make is based on what they believe will give them the greatest advantage or disadvantage at the moment. So some people have an unconscious motive to keep holding that path because they're getting affection, mm. uh, rewards, or some form that they may not want to admit and they may deny, but it's there or they wouldn't be doing it. Can I interrupt just for a moment? Quick personal story from a breakthrough experience. I, I, Because it's always been one of the biggest seeds of my life. I was at the breakthrough experience. It was in Sydney, I think. And the, the, the fellow next to me, um, so Sarah and I were sitting apart. The fellow next to me was there for about an hour and he left. He was there with his wife and he left. And, I, and I'm there with my wife. And I said to Sarah in the break, and he said, I just can't hack it. Like it's, it's too hard. And I, I was probably 25, 26 at the time. And I said to Sarah, I was like, all this time, all this money, he's here with his wife and he leaves. Like, I was like, they're going to break up. They're gone. Like, there's no way the wife will continue on with this. But hearing you say that now, maybe his motive, conscious or not, was that the relationship that he was in was not the relationship that he was going to have for the rest of his life. And maybe that was, let's say they broke up, maybe that was the trigger that needed to happen for both of them to break up and set each other free. But on the surface, it's easy for me to say, what a waste, what a weak guy, not ready to invest. That's no good. But again, they're, they're labels that don't serve. They're just labels that judge, aren't they? Well, some, sometimes people have a motive right there because their whole narrative for the last 30 years of their life or so is this story. Mm. And all of a sudden, now the story is threatened and your identity is wrapped around the story and your identity is threatened. And so it's like somebody's trying to kill your identity mm-hmm. if all of a sudden you're facing the truth of what actually occurred. Well that, happened to you. well, that happened to you under the Bible stand. I mean, your identity was threatened right at that moment. In a sense, it was threatened. It wasn't as threatened. I, I was questioning whether it was a fantasy that I would be able to learn or whether, you know, because I knew I could go back and surf and do that. Hmm. But I didn't know if I could go forward and really learn how to read. Yeah. And that was the turning point. When she said what she said, there was a point that I'm not going to give up. I'm going to go forward. And I realized that it's kind of like a divine providence and human sovereignty meet. And now you're working with the universe now. You're not, you're not, there's no option. You're not going to allow any perception that's going to interfere with it. Can I share a story? I'd like to share a story. Love to. I was in uh, the Milk Abbey in Austria speaking at the Waldzell Conference. And one of the speakers was a Nobel Prize winning speaker, Paul Nurse. He was one of the other speakers. And I had the time, some time with him. And he um, had an amazing story. When he was born, uh, it was his 12-year-old sister that gave birth to him. Wow. His mother and father were so humiliated by a 12-year-old pregnancy that they took the baby away from them, from the girl, exiled the girl, shamed her, put her in another city. He was raised by the parents because she was incapable of raising His whole life, he believed that that was his parents. He didn't know any different. They were a little older, but didn't know any difference. Only 12 years older than probably a standard parent. But deep inside, he had a yearning, a quest. He got his Nobel Prize in his 50s for the origin of life and the genetic code. And on his 50th something birthday, when he said, when he received the Nobel Prize, the selection committee said, you're going to be winning it. We need to have your biography, an authentic biography. He started digging and found out something. He never even checked. Wow. He found out that his mother was his sister. When he did, he insisted that his sister be at the Nobel Prize winning speech. So he told the story. And he honored his sister, who is the most shameful part of the family, now the most honorable. 
It resolved and made the parents and the sister join. They united. But he had a void. What's my true origin? Where do I really come from? Innately. Hmm. There's no suspicion consciously. But innately, what's my real genes? What's my real source? <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> So sometimes we think these crises are blessings if we, if we look. Mm. And sometimes we run the story and never look mm. and just assume the narrative that there's a, a loss without a gain, a negative without a positive, a pain without a pleasure, a trauma without a, an opportunity and gift. And I'm a firm believer that if you want to be fully conscious, mindful, enlightened, you got to ask Intuitive questions to awaken the unconscious to make you fully conscious and see the other side. Because if you balance the mind, you liberate it mm. from the emotions that occupy space and time to mind and haunt you in your subconscious mind. And you awaken a superconscious awareness. And a superconscious awareness is graced. A subconscious one is, in a sense, disgraced. You're, you're, you're ungrateful for life. Mm. So, yeah, we can be victims of history or we can be masters of destiny. And I believe that knowing how to ask questions and equilibrate the mind, liberate that. And I've been doing the, the breakthrough experience for over 32 years. I've done it 1,122 times. I've seen over 100,000 people transform their lives. And I'm certain that nothing your mortal body can experience. There's nothing your mortal body can experience that your mortal soul, the soul means the state of unconditional love, can't transcend and love. So there's, there's, it doesn't matter what happens to you. You have the capacity to turn into something you can be grateful for. And anything you're not grateful for is baggage. Anything you are grateful for is fuel. Mm. And I'm, a, I'm about helping people find the gratitude in their life so they can lighten up and radiate outward instead of gravitate inward. I think you, the, you said the state, uh, the soul is a state of unconditional love. Um, I'm just, I'm just about to put the book to print, Dr. Z. Martini, and I want to pop that in there. <laughs> I'm sure you find that over time, an author of over 40 books, you're just about to go to print. You think, oh, hold on, let me put that in, let me put that in. It, 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 that, that was stated, Erwin, uh, no, pardon me, uh, Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg said the same thing. About the time you're ready to publish your book, you learn something new that makes you want to not publish it, but you can publish <laughs> it and move on. Yeah. Um, I'm really busting for you to be able to fly over to Australia again. I will put for everyone that's watching and listening all of the links to attend the Breakthrough Experience online and to attend Prophecy online. I desperately want to attend Master Planning for Life, Dr. Martini, and also um, Synchronicity, which uh, with four kids at the moment, it was on a weekend just recently and I would have loved to attend. But uh, I know you run um, dozens of events every year, but I'm busting to attend in the flesh again, a breakthrough experience um, and many other events. Just on that, I, the complete change of topic, and I'm going to come back to what we're talking about in a, in a moment. But for the, for the people that are going, what does Dr. Martini think about the world right now? Um, I know you're in Houston, Texas at the moment. Um, do you, you know, your life purpose is to research, write, travel, and speak. And I know digitally you can travel all over the world at the moment. I'm in Australia. You're in America. But um, just just feed my, feed my sense for a moment. When do you think we'll be able to travel? And when do you think I'll be able to see you in the flesh again and give you a hug of gratitude and, uh, and experience another live event? Um, I suspect third quarter this year there'll be a gradual increase in mobility again. Most likely, I would say June, July. July will be probably starting to pick that pace up. By the end of the year, I would assume that, you know, at least 60% of that is going to be back. By definitely spring, we should be back. The, you know, the, the COVID is kind of calming down in some places, although in some places there are spikes because they're having challenges. But um, I think that's not too far away. You know, I, when I first hit COVID, I was in Japan. I had to go from Sydney to... Um, through Hong Kong to Tokyo. When I went through the Hong Kong airport, it was vacant. The ghost town. You had to take do a temperature thing to get on a plane. And um, people were wearing masks and things. 
And I got into Hong, I should attend to Tokyo and did a breakthrough experience. The last one we did live, everybody had masks on except me speaking. And um, after we also filmed a movie there, which we didn't get to finish yet because it got put on hold. But then I flew from there to Los Angeles and I landed in Los Angeles on Monday night after the breakthrough experience on Sunday. And then Tuesday, the lockdown occurred. So my seminar that Wednesday got shut down and I went online. So I just went right online on, from Tuesday to Wednesday, did the live seminar, had about 75% of the people still show up. We notified them. And then the breakthrough experience was online that weekend. And probably 60% showed up. I canceled 20 city tours, but we went online hmm. and redid them. I put out a message to my students around the world to stop, reflect, apply the principles I've been teaching you. And let's, if you're seeing a setback, find out what the opportunities and benefits are. I got 17,000 benefits sent to me. Wow. Different benefits, 17,000. And I started reading them out to my students. This is what people are saying, so give them more to think about. And the ones that saw both sides, the setbacks and the comebacks, both sides, got resilient, adapted quickly and moved forward and used all the technology to move forward in their life. And the ones that wanted to wallow in their pity party, their trauma drama, their whole hum, hold on doldrum, they didn't turn their scars into stars. Mm -hmm. They sat and ran their story mm -hmm. until a little later, and then they got it. So we don't have to have time between our two sides of perception. We can look instantaneously. Wilhelm Wandt, one of the early psychologists, said there's a law of contrast. It's worth reading about. He said there are simultaneous contrasts and sequential contrast. The people who are resilient have simultaneous contrast. They immediately see the other side. Mm -hmm. That's how the brain works, yes. actually. Yes. And the ones that take sequential contrast over time, the longer the time, the denser they are, and the more they run their story of being a victim. Mm or fantasy, because it can work both ways. So I'm interested in knowing how to speed up the time between sequential and simultaneous awareness, because mm. one well, is mindless, mindful. Well, Frankel's experience in the concentration camps goes to show that, uh, what was the first one? Was it immediate contrast? Um, but like you said, he could see both sides a lot quicker than, than everyone else around him. It brings me to my question around expectation. I feel like it was you that first shared um, expectation is the root of all heartache. I could give the Shakespeare translation, but let's just go with the modern translation. Expectation is the root of all heartache. I don't think I've told you my um, breakthrough experience uh, epiphany or my breakthrough. I went to the breakthrough with my wife, Sarah, and I'm sure you said the hardest person to do a breakthrough on is yourself or your spouse. Um, and I'm a selfish firstborn Leo, always want to do the hardest thing. So I'm like, right, Sarah's here. I'm going to do my breakthrough on Sarah. And then uh, not to give all of, the, all of the breakthrough experience away, but part of the breakthrough experience is once you've chosen uh, who you're doing the collapse on, you find someone that reminds you of that person that acts as a surrogate at the event. And I'm like, no, don't want a surrogate. I want the real deal. Put my wife in front of me and I'm going to do the collapse looking into Sarah's eyes. And I thought, Dr. Martini, I thought I had nailed it. I filled out excruciatingly in painstaking detail all of the, all of the uh, support and challenge, every single column, I'm like, yep, I've got this. Babe, sit in front of me. I'll do the collapse and the rest. And I told her everything and she looked at me and she said, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I, I don't actually feel feel it. And, um, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know here, Dr. Martini, but for everyone listening, the idea is that you do the collapse uh, before you go to bed on day one. So you go to bed that night, you've done the collapse, you've had your breakthrough, you feel a million bucks, tears of gratitude, you wake up the next day and you really start um, writing the script of the next chapter of your life. Well, I, I wore the metaphorical dunce cap, Dr. Martini, because I was actually ushered out of the room in Sydney going, look, Marcus, you're going to have to go to bed, you're going to have to sleep on it, come back in the morning with a fresh set of eyes and do your breakthrough with your wife then. Uh, woke up full of beans, went to do it with Sarah and uh, 
failed miserably the second time. And then it was only the third time, Dr. Martini, where I realised that I had to release all expectation for Sarah to be anyone else other than Sarah. She's a chiropractor by profession. We had two young kids at the time. I was expecting her to leave home at home and then when you get to work, leave your, leave your kids at home and forget about the kids and just be a chiropractor and don't worry about it and make big things small. And I had this major epiphany. Why am I expecting Sarah to be like me? She's Sarah. She wants to be a mum. She wants to be a full-time mum. And the reason why I tell you this is because it has been the complete uh, seed of the next seven, 14 years of our lives. I'm a big believer in seven-year cycles. We sold our chiropractic centre. We moved to Byron Bay in Australia. I started my business that allowed me to write this book, and it all really is because of the deep, profound seeds of the breakthrough experience. And I do have a question here, and the question is, why do you think it is that me and the other 7.6 billion people on the planet have this unconscious expectation that other people should be more like us because I see it with clients all the time. Why doesn't my husband want to eat like me? Why doesn't my husband want to love like me? Why doesn't my wife want to sleep with me more? Why don't my kids want to do this and that? Expectation on others is rife. Like, why is it? If any two people are exactly the same, one's not necessary. Yeah. So is it an inner feeling that maybe we're not necessary if the other person? No, but just know that that our amygdala is addicted to sugar, consumption, pleasure, infatuation, fantasy, and pride. And whenever we have amygdala, we want to avoid pain and seek pleasure. We want to avoid challenge and seek ease and support. Mm-hmm. And we want to be proud. And we want to believe that our value structure and our opinion of the world, our view of the world is accurate and right. And superior. Now, when two people get together in a marriage, you marry kind of the disowned part. Mm. They have a different set of values. Totally. You you delegate stuff that you don't want to do to them that they love doing, and they delegate stuff to you that they don't want to do kind of thing. And so you think you're right with your values. And she probably thinks she's right in her values. If you're not really authentic and you're proud and letting the amygdala run you, not your executive function where you're objective and more authentic, we have a pride thing and we tend to project our values on them and expect others to live in our values. Hmm. Now, the A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I's of negativity will spontaneously emerge the second you do because you're going to be angry because they're not meeting your expectation. Hmm. You're going to be aggressive. You're going to blame them. You're going to feel betrayed. You're going to criticize them. You're going to feel challenged. You're going to be despaired and depressed, and you're going to want to exit and escape, and you feel futile and frustrated, and you're going to feel grouchy and grief and hatred and hurt and irritation and insanity. These ABCDFGHs, eyes of negativity, are feedback mechanisms to let you know that your self-righteous pride is blocking your appreciation and love for this unique individual that's counterbalancing you to make you whole or make you at least aware of wholeness that you're not honoring in yourself, better said. So, yeah, we have a tendency to think that our filter of reality is correct. I went to speak at UNESCO in France, the big building that's the center where they train the delegates for the United Nations. And I was a guest speaker there. And I had 75 young United Nations delegate trainees. And we talked about world peace which is an interesting thing, the illusion of it. And I said, um, everybody write down what they think will create real peace. And everybody filters their world through their values, and they all wrote down their own ideas about what would create world peace. And then I said, okay, stand up and speak on what you think could create world peace. Anybody got a comment about it? Who is supportive of that and who, who thinks that won't work? And I showed the pairs of opposites in the room and show that the idea of creating everybody agreeing on the same thing is really futile. We must have both agreement and disagreement, support and challenge, kind of a unity and diversity in order to maximally grow mm. and evolve. We're not here to grow with support without challenge. If we had prey without predator, we'd be gluttonous and fat and not fit. If we had predator without prey, we'd be emaciated and starved and not fit. 
but we put prey and predator together, support and challenge anabolic, catabolic together, we get fitness and we get eustress. Eustress is pursuing challenges that inspire us so we get a balance of support and challenge. That's, that's the magnificence of it. So the purpose of marriage is authenticity, not being right. Mm. And so she did her job and she gave you feedback because you probably had an idea that was still an expectation that you wish you would change. And mm. people want to be loved and appreciated for who they are, not to be what you want them to be. I often, I'm you so glad. You to you are. Yeah. I'm so glad you said this because that was, I forgot to close the loop. That was the, the third time lucky that allowed Sarah and I to have this magical moment together at the breakthrough experience when we realized that we don't have to change. Sarah said, I can't keep up with you, Marcus. You go so fast. I'm like, babe, I don't want you to try and keep up. Like I'm fast. You're slow. I'm loud. You're quiet. I want to work. You want to raise the kids. Let's not try and change that. That was the tears of gratitude at the breakthrough experience that we could give each other a big hug on and just, and lay the rest of our life together with that lack of expectation. The thing that happens is all relationships within us, within organizations, within relationships, strive for androgyny. They strive for the complementation of opposite genetically. The male and female DNA and genes are reciprocally opposites. The, the, the entire LL system are complete complementary opposites. So if you're dedicated to business and finance and intellect and setting order and structure, she's going to go with the flow, want to go and have kids. She's going to want to yeah. socialize and want to maintain her beauty and health. Yeah, That's just the way it works. The pairs of opposites meet. Now, if you're well-rounded and empowered in all areas, you'll probably mate with somebody that's also well-rounded and empowered in all areas. Hmm. But if you're polarized in any direction, they're going to be polarized the other to make sure that you learn to love that disowned part so you can imp- incorporate that in your own life because that's where most resilience and adaptability is. Hmm. Oh, I love it. Thank you. And I have mentioned, uh, I hope you don't tell me to rewrite it, but I have put the ABCDs of negativity in the spirit section. I did I did observe that you're now up to EFGHI. What was it? Insecurity and insanity. <laughs> <laughs> or um, and the rest. I feel like if I interview you in 10 more years, it'll go A to Z of negativity. Um, but I, I just want to reiterate that high expectations will dampen the soul. Uh, it doesn't make for a fulfilling life. And um, I'm so glad. I, I absolutely live by the ABCDs of negativity as a way to understand if I am expecting too much um, of anyone or anything and if I haven't communicated them. So I thank you sincerely. I have one more question um, before I let you go. I was at the cafe the other day and I was probably up to here. I was in the last 20 20 pages of proofreading the mock copy of the book and um, I kind of sit near the counter and there's a lady there waiting for a coffee and she's like, she was English and she said, what does the author say is the secret to an exceptional life? The book's called Your Exceptional Life. She sees the cover. She's like, what does the author say is the secret to, to an exceptional life? And the owner of the cafe said, he is the author. He wrote this book. He did the research. And I got a little bit shy and a little bit uh, uncomfortable. But I was uncomfortable because she wanted to know what the headline, what was the silver bullet? What was the secret? Um, and I realized that I actually, you know, my editor was probably very keen to say, I have on the back of the book, is there a secret to living an exceptional life? And then I say, yes, there is. And it may not be what you think. And I thought, oh created a bit of a rod for my own back here because I feel like you talk about the seven powers of life. I have the, the eight ingredients to an exceptional life. The, the, the secret is not just one thing. It's a combination. It's a recipe. It's how much you put in. It's, it's your values. It's, you can't say there's one secret for everyone. So my question is, um, why, why does humanity have a, almost like an obsession with finding the magic bullet to whatever it is, a million dollars, the best marriage, the best health, the best house, the best friends. What is this obsession with the secret? The amygdala wants immediate gratification and it doesn't want to have to think. Mm -hmm. It just wants to feel good and it wants it now and it wants it simple so they don't have to rack their brain. The executive center is willing to contemplate and explore the the infinite potential that's out there. When Stephen Hawking, I had the opportunity to be filmed in a new movie that's coming out with Stephen. Mm. And um, they interviewed him and they asked him, the lady who's a CNN correspondent who invited and interviewed us all. She asked him and said, 
what inspires you? What inspired you to do what you do? And you can only see his eye movements very slightly. And he has to speak to that little special device. And then he has this kind of a mechanical electronic voice, you know. And he says, the pursuit of the universal law that all laws are derived from. Finding that one law that applies to all laws. Hmm. He said, although I have not obtained it, and although it may not even be obtainable, the inspiration is the pursuit. Hmm. And I learned something daily by that pursuit. So the complexity he's had to delve, deal with and the variables he's had to deal with are astronomical. Hmm. But finding that, that law, that one law, is the part of us that, that wants to find that one and that many. One of the most magnificent laws of the universe is called the law of the one and many. Hmm. I think about it all the time. When, you, when you're married, you, what do you call it? When you've got yeah. the one, you think about the many. And when you're not married, you're in the many thinking about the one. <laughs> exactly. That's the, that's the fate of it. But it's like within the soul, the one soul, the authentic self, the unconditionally loving self that's not exaggerating itself or minimizing itself, it's just authentic, is many personas. Hmm. But in every persona is an intuitive entangled link with its opposite to take you back to the one. Hmm. Whispering constantly to try to help you become authentic with the feedback of physiology, psychology, sociology, theology, trying to get you back to the one. So the nature of, of this yearning for this simple bullet, this magic bullet, is I don't want to have to think. I just want to think I think. Hmm. Don't make people think, make them think they think. Uh, they want a quick, easy fix. That's I think just, why the magic bullet. Absolutely. And I feel just listening to you and I feel like I'm – you know, asking you a question because I remember many years ago I said, uh, you know, Dr. Demartini, I love to speak, uh, but I'm not sure what to do with my life. I think it was at a breakthrough experience. And you said, well, if you love speaking so much, why don't you make a career out of it? And um, I remember that. <laughs> that was like in 2012. And here we are in 2021 uh, having this conversation um, and the culmination of your wisdom and uh, the inspiration that you have given me and many others. I've probably asked you in other interviews you know, what's the secret to aging? And I'm sure you say it's inspiration. And you talk about Stephen Hawking. And I wrote in the book, you know, death to di diagnosis to death for uh, motor neuron disease or ALS is around two years. And he lived for 55 years past his diagnosis. Um, and I'm sure it would be. Uh, we can't do a double blind control study on this, but I'm sure we could say that his inspiration is what allowed him to live such a truly great life. And Dr. Demartini, ever since I've had the pleasure of um, knowing you to a point, but learning so much of your life's work and your list, uh, and your wisdom, and and I've said in the acknowledgements at the end of the book, you know, thank you, Dr. Demartini, for living your life purpose because because of that you've inspired me to live my life purpose, and I genuinely want to thank you for your contribution to humanity and on a selfish level for your inspiration uh, for me to put five years of my life's work into this book. And um, I know it sounds cliche, but I couldn't have done it without you because you've sent me down so many rabbit holes to help me uncover my own exceptional life so I can help other people live there. So, Dr. John Demartini, thank you so much for doing what you do. Thank you. That's very, very lovely to hear. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you for, I remember the day that uh, I said that. And I remember you got it. And you took uh, action. And you know what? Millions of people, millions of people are going to be blessed because you took action and became authentic. Thank you for your guidance and your wisdom. And uh, I hope everyone listening, uh, you don't have to do it through me. Take Dr. 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 John Demartini's advice. Head on over to drdemartini.com. Do the values determination process. No doubt the 13 most important questions you will ever ask yourself and most importantly, if you answer them. And as Dr. Demartini said, uh, take action and do them. Dr. Demartini, as I say on the front cover of the book and as I like to wish everyone, may the rest of your life continue to be the best of your life. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening or watching Your Exceptional Life. Cannot thank you enough for supporting the message. The best thing you can do is to share this podcast with a friend, open up a whole new world to them, uh, show them what podcasts are all about. And if you've loved this particular episode, 
please share it with them, whether it's on Apple iTunes or Spotify or YouTube or via email. However you like to do it, you'll make a big difference in someone's life. If you uh, haven't left a five-star review or a rating on your favorite podcast platform, please do. That always helps the world see more of uh, this exceptional life message. Uh, you're more than welcome to follow me on social media at Marcus D. Pierce on all the major platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and so on. Uh, and if you are yet to uh, be part of the email community, uh, head on over to marcuspierce.com.au. You can also purchase the book there. Get a signed copy at marcuspierce.com.au or if you love audio books and e-books and the rest, go to the Big Mobs, Amazon, and the like, and you can uh, consume uh, your exceptional life uh, on any of those big platforms. Thanks again for your support of my message and until next time, continue to live your exceptional life.